Just a heads up, this episode of Not Alone contains a personal story of mental health. If you or someone you know needs support, visit beyondblue.org.au or call our support service on 1300 22 4636. Hey, I'm Mark Fennell, and from Beyond Blue, this is Not Alone. Remarkable stories from everyday Australians talking about their mental health journey to help you with yours. And this episode is all about loneliness and isolation. I don't know if I'm annoying, boring, or just a burden. I can be surrounded by people and feel lonely. Something must be wrong with me. Four years without someone to laugh and have a good time with. I can with. go weeks without seeing another human being. No one talks to me or acknowledges I'm me. I'm almost 40 with four kids. I'm friendless. And I've never felt so alone and worthless in my life. How do you make friends as an adult? I'm just so lonely. I really, really want a hug. It's an actual physical pain. And I remember having a very difficult conversation with my parents saying, I just feel like my life is useless. And my parents couldn't understand it. Now, it may seem surprising that in a world of 7.7 billion people, anyone could feel lonely, but it's a really common experience. Rather perversely, in fact, loneliness is a thing that unites us, with research showing that just over half of Australians report feeling lonely for at least one day every week. And as you're about to hear, loneliness and isolation can pretty negatively impact on your physical and your mental health. When I was growing up, I felt like there was this, uh, there's a lot of pressure to perform academically. This is Cecil, who was only 11 years old when her family moved her and her three siblings away from their home in the Philippines provinces to the capital, Manila. There, Cecil excelled at high school and later at university. And you might have heard this from a lot of Asian... Oh, my mum's from Singapore. I get yes, this. Yes, right. Get this. <laughs> and uh, even when I talk to other um, Asian communities, they say the same thing, you know. In Asia, it's very competitive. So when you go to high school, you have to do really well to get into the good uni. Mm-hmm. And you have to do well in uni as well to get into a good job. And so there's always this feeling of you have to perform at a certain level because you have to prove yourself almost. Growing up, I felt like I had to be in the honor roll. I remember crying if I didn't make it to the honor roll. Mm. And my, my friends would be like, why wouldn't you be crying? I would kill for your grades. And I'm like, you don't understand. My parents would get disappointed. After spending a short time in the Philippines TV industry, Cecil decided to quit her job and head back to study. Now, her parents were supportive of her decision, but they began by encouraging her in a particular direction. Um, My parents have been wanting to, were kind of pushing me to move to Australia even before that. So even when I was still in uni, my sister had moved to Australia. I think she moved in 2000. Mm And so she was already here. And so my parents have been trying to, like, move me here, to move me to Australia. Wow. <laughs> and First so, they moved you to Manila, <laughs> then they moved to Australia. <laughs> yeah, my parents have big dreams, let's just say. <laughs> yeah. They wanted us to have the best chance in life, basically. Mm. And another thing, I think, culturally that people have in the Philippines is if you're living overseas, you have a good life. Yeah. You, know, you have a better chance. There's the greener pastures, basically. And so my parents thought, okay, if you're going to quit this job, okay, it's we're, we're okay with that. We're going to support you, but you're going to move to Australia. And so when I told my sister that I'm moving to Australia, or that's the plan, my sister immediately told me, you shouldn't move to Australia. And I said, why? And she said, it's going to be very hard. You're going to have a hard time finding a job here and all that. But at the time, I was thinking, you know, I have a good qualification. I thought like, okay, I'll, I'll be fine. And she said like, no, 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 you shouldn't. But, and at the same time as well, at that time, I had a boyfriend in the Philippines. 
And so I was half-hearted about going. I think we even had like a conversation of trying to end the relationship because I said to him, I remember saying to him, I'm not planning to come back. If I go to Australia, my goal is to migrate eventually. And so it was a very difficult conversation to have with him, to be honest. Mm. But even though initially we're like, okay, maybe we should end it now. But we were young, you know. How, how old were you at this point? <laughs> I was 19. Oh, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> and, but we thought, you know, we'll, we'll give it a try. You know, we'll long distance. It's going to be tough. But we're going to try to make it work. So, you hop on the plane. Do you remember what was going through your head? I was crying at the airport. Before even leaving, so unsure. You know, like, you know, when you're like, you made a decision and you're you're having some regrets, I think. Yeah. You know, when you buy something on an impulse and you're having like buyer's remorse. It's also, <laughs> it was almost like that. I was like, am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right decision? So when you arrive in Australia, is there a culture shock? When it hit me that I wasn't going to go back, mm. that's when it started dawning on me that it's not what I expected it to be. Cecil had hoped to continue her studies in Australia as an international student, but the necessities of Sydney living meant that she had to find a job, and fast. I suppose when I started applying for jobs and I felt like my sister said, don't be picky. They always say to me, people who migrate, and even now I say this to people, when they come here, don't be picky with job. That job was in a call centre, and it didn't take long for that greener pastures ideal to come crashing down. In that job, you experienced some bullying. Can you tell me what happened? The first job, I remember, like, um, difficult customers, quote-unquote customers on the phone. So they would call back, and then they were just, you try to sell to them and all that, and they were just being very difficult. And then... I found out later on from other colleagues that it was actually some of the people I work with who were calling me and I think maybe in a way sabotaging me. Soon Cecil leaves that job for another at a different call centre where she encounters abuse, this time from those on the other end of the line. People would first say to me, where are you? So, Oh, they assumed you were somewhere else. They would assume I was yeah. in the Philippines and then they would have said, no, no, I'm in Australia and they would say things like, no, no, no you're not. And then if I tried to prove to them that I'm in Sydney by telling them, like, oh, I'm whatever. They'll be I'm... like, you were given a, a script to respond yes. to. Yeah, yeah, And or, or worse, I've had people say to me, I should go back to where I came from. I even had some person say sexist things. I remember trying to learn the Aussie accent. Really? Yes, because because of what I was getting on the phone. People yeah. were saying, you, you obviously, you're not Aussie or you're not Australian or you, you're, you're not from around here. And so I felt like at that time, just to save myself a lot of these conversations, that I would try to speak like an Aussie. And also at that time, it was hard for me to understand Aussies when they're talking. Look, I'm not saying that calling you at seven o'clock in the evening while you're watching TV or having dinner is a pleasant experience. Um, but I wish people would just respect people, you mm. know, people's jobs. This was my job. And I to be called things or to be to people for people to say things like that. Yeah. To me, that made me really cry. When you would pack up at the end of a shift and go home, how did you feel about yourself after being subjected to that? Not very good. Not very good because I had a lot of, I would say, healthy pride in myself or self-belief. I still felt that I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm a qualified person. 
Um, I'm a very ambitious person at the same time. And I thought, I've achieved a lot of things before. I can achieve more things. So to to feel like that, it was very demotivating. It, it really was. And, and because you're so far away from your support system. I mean, my sister was, was he, which was good. But I didn't have a lot of friends he. I didn't, uh, my boyfriend being back in the Philippines, my family was, they were there. It felt like I was alone, really. Could you talk to anyone about it? It was hard because having my friends back in the Philippines, I almost didn't want to say that all of these things were happening. You know, you're trying to show people that you're happy. You don't want, my, I didn't want my parents to worry. I think my sister did the same thing, you know. We didn't want my our family to worry about us. I don't want to be a burden. The second thing was I was ashamed that things were not working out for me. Or I had this, we were raised with tough love in a way. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you just soldier on and, and do your best. You don't quit. And I had a goal. My goal at that time was like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it no matter what happens. And so you, you, I, the only person that I was very honest with was my boyfriend at that time. He knew what was happening. And I think that was affecting the relationship as well because I felt like he couldn't relate to it as much. Because I think in the culture, in the culture that we have in the Asian community, there's this stigma around going to counseling about mental health in general. We don't talk about our problems. If I was to ask you the moment when you felt most alone, is there a single moment that stands out? I suppose when things didn't work out with my boyfriend. And then at that time, I was not, uh, I was not a permanent resident yet. So I'm still trying to figure things out with my sister as to how I'm going to become I was going to become a, a permanent resident. So you're worried about that, your future, your own future, you're worried about that. And then your relationship didn't work out. So that support the support that I had at that time, the only support person that I had I felt aside from my sister. When I lost that support, it it made me feel even worse. Being 19 at that time, I was trying to figure out who I was, what I want to do in life, in a strange place. Not that Australia is very strange, but you know. Oh no, it's very strange. It's very strange. (laughs) (laughs) In a strange foreign land. And so that was not very easy. How are you sleeping? I was crying a lot. So it was very hard at that time to have a peaceful sleep. I was heartbroken, I should say, and confused because you're trying to map your map your life at the same time and you're trying to um, encourage yourself. I remember like crying a lot and crying myself to sleep at that time. I felt like I couldn't be fully happy with myself. I wasn't happy and I would beat myself up over it. I would hide these sort of things from people. I felt like I was almost living a double life. In the outside, people thought I was very strong, very confident, very cheerful. But deep inside, I felt really miserable. That I was almost like a fraud, like this person who was just who's just showing the good side of herself. But deep inside, 
I was really struggling with myself. And um, I started getting distracted at work. I started breaking down. I started feeling like I couldn't sleep. I was just thinking a lot. And um, the things that I normally like to do, I didn't want to do. And, and deep inside, I could feel that I've lost a part of myself, if not myself. Like, that wasn't me anymore. And how long did that go on for? Years. Years. Yes. And when I was going through these sort of things in my head, I started questioning a lot of things. And I remember one day just feeling like my life is useless and had no purpose. That's what I was telling myself, or that's how I felt. When we talk about isolation in my mind, I just think about physical isolation. You're in a different country, mm-hmm. but I'm starting to get the impression that it was more than that. Yeah, definitely. I think people think that, you know, you have to be physically alone to feel isolated. That's not the case at all. Sometimes it's the case of you're going through something, but you can't say anything to other people. You can't open up. You you want people to, you want to be heard. You want to be understood. You want someone to say, it's okay. You know, but when you don't have the support network or you can't open up about certain issues or certain struggles that you're going through, you feel even more isolated. No matter what your culture, seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist, it still comes with some degree of stigma. And it can be as shameful as actually admitting to friends and family that, hey, things are not going well. And that was the case for Cecil. Things were not going well. Until she had a conversation with a trusted friend that changed everything. And she said that she was she was getting counselling. She, she was basically told me that what helped her a lot was therapy. And so that kind of made me feel like, okay, maybe it's not too bad. What was the help that you ended up getting? I think I was lucky at that time that the work that I was, the the company I was working for had uh, EAP, the Employee Assistance Program. Mm. So I tried counselling through the EAP initially. And uh, they started saying to me that, okay, I think you need some more extra sessions and you need to go to a psychologist. And so at that time, I went to a GP mm-hmm. and then I, um, the GP helped me get a mental health plan. With her mental health care plan, Cecil sought out a psychologist she felt she could trust. And then, cautiously at first, she started to engage in therapy and began opening up. And what she learned was that she had mild depression, the result of all of the pressure and the stress to be successful and competent and those feelings of isolation. The psychologist tried something called cognitive behaviour therapy, or CBT, with Cecil, and it had almost immediate positive impact. So she continued to see the psychologist, she continued to feel better in her strange adopted home, and then she told her parents about her therapy. I remember when I first... Because, you know, this whole recovery process of therapy, it's not just a one-time thing, you know. I've, there's years after where I'm feeling all right and then it happened again where there's a different problem now and you go to the therapy. But the first time I remember telling my family that I was going to go to counselling, they, they discouraged me to do it. They really? said, no, you don't have to go to counselling. You don't need it. And I think the, mis- the, the reason why there's a misunderstanding is because in the culture, if you go to counselling, it means there's something wrong with you. 
mentally. And I think that's the hardest thing to admit. They think that the, you're not crazy. That's what they're saying. You're not crazy. You're just lonely. I remember people saying, you're just lonely. You need to just talk to people. And so I had to hide this from my family. And so I remember when they would call me and I was at therapy and I could I could hear my phone buzzing, just buzzing. Like I just obviously ignore it because, you know, it was on silent. And then I would pick up the phone after um, the session and I'd call them back and say, hey. And they'd be like, where were you? I said, no, 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 I, um, I, I was just, um, I was out with friends. That's what I would say. I was having coffee with friends. That's, that's what it was like, that I had to lie to people. At this time, I had friends already, but I didn't tell them that I was going through it because I was so embarrassed. I was just so ashamed. Was there a moment when you stopped feeling isolated? I started doing things that I love. I started exploring. I started meeting people who are the same. I felt like I found my tribe in a way. But most importantly, I think, was when I started being more open about my own struggles. That's the key. When I felt like I didn't have to hide anymore, that's when I started feeling like this weight off your shoulders, you know? I started being more open to my family. So if I'm going through something, I tell them, I call them and say, hey, and then they would even check on me now, like they would check up on me and um, or we'd, we'd, we'd open up about even their own family, you know, family dramas or issues. We started sorting them out or like dealing with them more openly. Well, back then you're like, just all these things that you're, you can't talk about. But now even as a family, we're more open. They're not very proud of what I'm doing now. They're very supportive. I think it's almost like that's the thing with mental health. We're always trying to f- to prove the legitimacy of mental health. That it's a real thing, you know. And I think they started seeing experiences of other people that is real. You know, people are going through these sort of things. And the main thing as well is that now when we see family members struggling with something, whether that's mentally or emotionally and all that, I've seen the complete turnaround in terms of how we react to it. Back then, it was more of, it was almost like a fear, confusion. It was always like, what's wrong with you? And why can't you fix it? Or, you know, you don't need to go to counseling. But now there's a bit more of a, an open communication. Like, you know, my own brother, for example, he's the one who is now telling his friends, saying, you know, if you need counseling, there's nothing wrong with seeking counseling. And hopefully the friends listen to him, you know. But if you change one person's mind or you affect one person and this person then you know, becomes a speaker for it or an advocate for mental health. And that's that's all I can ask for. And that's why I'm doing this, so, so that the community, the Asian community, the Filipino community can become more open-minded about it. And slowly I can see things changing in the community. And if my family could change their minds about it, then I'm sure and I'm hoping that other families would would change as well about it. One of the key things that drives Cecil is that she wants to share her story in part to help those who are facing that same loneliness, that same isolation that she experienced, especially the thousands of international students and also multicultural communities all around Australia. In Australia, people talk about immigration all the time, but Mm. I'd, I'd love to know, what is it you think people get wrong when they talk about the experience of being a new arrival in Australia trying to build a life 
very few friends, no, very little family, almost nil support structure. What is it you wish people knew about how isolating that experience can be? People don't realize how hard it is for us to even start a life here. And I wish that we had more support. No one tells you that until you come here. No one discovers that until you experience it yourself, how difficult it is. I hope that these international students or even migrants realize that there are free services out there to help you when you're struggling. I didn't know that. I didn't know Beyond Blue or any of these things when I came. I only discovered that eventually later on. But I wish people realized that there are some support out there that can help you navigate through these difficult times. Cecil's experience of loneliness and isolation, it's remarkably common, and it's certainly not confined to international students. And according to Beyond Blue's lead clinical advisor, Dr Grant Blaschke, the impacts of that loneliness and isolation can ripple throughout your life. Dr Grant, thank you for talking to me. Um, I think a big part of Cecil's story is just how damaging isolation, that loneliness of her story comes through. Draw a line for me how that can impact more broadly on your mental health. So what we understand about mental health now is that there are multiple causes, but your levels of support, your connectedness in the community are really quite protective. So when you land in another country, no friends, no family, uh, not really a good understanding of how to link up with other people, that isolation can be quite a driver of mental health problems. And when you think about it, and I say this to some of my patients, if you're just stuck there with not much of a plan, caught in your own thoughts, that's very destructive. You know, you'd be much better off trying to link up with others. In a university context, that might be community groups. There's lots of sporting groups, religious groups. There's a lot of online options now um, for people to link up with others. There's a particular a website called Gather My Crew, which I quite like, which is about trying to, you know, meet others to support you during a hard time. So there's definitely the options there. It's just people getting comfortable enough to be able to say, yeah, look, I've got, I'm having a hard time. I need some help. It's a lot harder to spiral when you've got a group of people around you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of people hear terms like anxiety and depression, but I don't know how, but where people are, of how common it is. Yeah, it's actually very common. So the research in Australia will tell us that in any one year, two million people have an anxiety condition, one million have a depression condition. So it's really common. And the litmus test for me is you just think about your family barbecue. There'll be definitely a couple of people who've been having a hard time or have had a hard time. So this is sort of everyday stuff, very, very common, talked about very much in Australian culture. I guess it's fair to say it's still a lot of stigma, uh, particularly in some other cultures where it really is seen as a weakness or something shameful. And this is a real barrier mm. that you know we're working hard to try and overcome. Just lastly, what's what's the number one takeaway from Cecil's story for you? You've you've heard the interview. What what do you take away from it? 
Yeah, what what I really took away from it was actually how she resolved it eventually, um, that she came to terms with the fact that she had a mental health issue, became comfortable talking about a bit of vulnerability and ultimately reached out to others to try and support her. Dr Grant, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks, Mark. What I learned from my experience is that my life started after that when I got help, when I admitted to myself that I had some issues to deal with and got help. That's when things started falling into place for me. That you can tell people you don't have to battle this alone. You don't have to suffer alone. Um, And that if you do seek help and hopefully seek help early, that there's a way to make things better. And I do just want to say a huge thank you to Cecil for sharing her story. You can join the conversation anytime you want. You can share your story at beyondblue.org.au slash forums. If you or anybody you know needs support, you can visit that website I just mentioned. There's also a support service you can call on 1300 224636. Uh, there's also quite a few resources that you can find if you just flick over to the show notes. Not Alone is a Beyond Blue podcast. It's hosted by me. I'm Mark Fennell, and it's produced by Sam Loy and executive produced by Darcy Sutton, Sarah Alexander and Tom Ross. This podcast was recorded and produced on Wurundjeri, Boonwurrung and Gadigal country, and we pay respect to the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you for listening to Not Alone.